Welcome to the Generation Hustle Podcast, a show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin. And today, we get the chance to pick the mind of Brendan Herjevic, an experienced business strategy and development professional with a background that spans seed-funded startups to multinational corporations. Now, you may recognize by his name that he is a son of Robert Herjavec from Dragon's Den. However, Brendan has been a part of some of Canada's fastest growing companies with a deep love for entrepreneurship. He had the opportunity to take his creativity around the globe, ranging from working in a traditional Japanese bonsai nursery to helping creating business plans in England through the Ernst & Young Young Entrepreneurship Program to assessing blockchain viability in Hong Kong for GeoSwift. Today, he's currently a client manager for Inkblock Therapy and serves as an advisor for Memories, both companies that revolve around mental health and well-being, all while completing his MBA at UBC. We talked to Brandon about his experience growing up in an entrepreneurial family, the cross-cultural lessons he has learned from around the world, as well as how we can growth hack B2B and B2C entities to help with exponential growth. So without further ado, let's get into the show. How are you, Brandon? My name is Sherison. Nice to meet you, Sherston. I wasn't sure to pronounce your name, so I was like, because that's hoping I'm butcher it. Good thing. Nah, that's totally cool. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's uh, It's been a long week, but overall pretty good. Fair, fair, fair. How's, uh, how's quarantine treating you? Quarantine's been all right. Luckily, I'm in Vancouver right now, so things are opening up. I get to go rock climbing tonight. Um, Sweet. The park's been open for quite a while. So overall, it's been pretty good. But besides that, because I pretty much graduated into this, it was a little rough. No, no in-person coffee chats, all done virtually. Right. No one was hiring. Um, and even people who were hiring as a shot in the dark if they were going to keep your contract or not. But besides that, and gaining quite a bit away from eating everything, <laughs> I was thinking I was going to run out of food during quarantine. It's been okay. Luckily, I've been finally starting to run, which, I mean, I could have started running on day one, but it took me right. two months of sitting down from my back hurting from sitting at the same chair for 12 hours a day. Right. <laughs> Physical fitness is important at these times. Yeah. I, I actually made a makeshift standing desk using one of my uh, dressers. So the, the chair was just getting too much for me as well. So uh, I was I, I did a standing desk, lying down desk. I was I was everywhere with my laptop, sitting outside. If anything I could do just to change it up a little bit. Right, right. It's awesome, man. Uh, well, super, super happy to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Um, again, the podcast focuses on uh, high achieving millennials who have uh, made great impacts within some of the industries that they've been working in. So. Uh, again, I'm going to let Sherston start off the podcast with a few questions and then uh, we'll go from there. For sure. Yeah, let's hop right into it. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming on, Brandon. Uh, we definitely we definitely appreciate this so much. And obviously, you have uh, a good extensive background in business and entrepreneurship, um, extending from your family as well. So that's kind of what I wanted to start off with, just understanding um, your early motivators and um, kind of like your family influence, uh, if anything, or if any of that had uh, an influence and in how much on your decision to enter the business world and entrepreneurship. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. I mean, coming from 
a pretty entrepreneurial family. I mean, both my parents did their own thing. My dad in cybersecurity and my mom, uh, you know, ran her own optometry, I guess you'd say studio. Uh, so since day one, I've really seen the ability to do your own thing. Um, but at the same time, I feel because I was a pretty big, pretty big part of my life, it was much more like a lot of the feedback I was given was to work for a company to really get some learnings done. So you don't have to learn for yourself, for yourself. So that's what I kind of found interesting compared to um, you know, some of the other people I've spoken to who come from quite a similar background to me was my family always promoted working for large organizations, mostly to get that learning. They always felt that, you know, by learning from someone else and getting experiences in life is really how, how you have your own success. Um, I mean, and funny enough, I think that really combines with my European background being, I guess my father's side, my first generation. Uh, my mom was born in Canada, but my father wasn't. Still a European mentality where, you know, you need security, you need to really focus on something that's safe. So I had a weird, I guess a weird combination of high risk, but also high stability. Um, so I think overall, they've really introduced me to the idea of business. So when it came to choosing a career path or major in school, when I was young, I thought I wanted to make video games, like most uh, teenage and young boys. So of course. Did programming since the age of 11 to about the age of 18, and then I realized, okay, video games is a really exciting industry, but being a programmer, much more focused on writing down code, building that out, not so much on playing video games all day. So I had a real difficulty in finding out what I wanted to do. I love you know, I loved solving problems and really working with tech in the past to figure out things, build your own things. I also loved speaking to people. Um, so when it came to finding a career, career path, it was one of those things where business school or just business in general was really a combination of the best of both worlds to me. And at the same time, I think it was one of those things where looking back, it's hard to say if it was the best decision as one of those things, especially now after an MBA where I'm, I realistically did a business degree twice was maybe I should have done an engineering degree or maybe I should have done math, but right. it's really hard to say where I would be today. And I kind of really just ended up constantly following what I want to do. And it's worked out pretty well for me, but it's, such, it's always hard to choose a major when you're that young. Yeah, for sure. And I like that. I like that you, you, you pretty much explained that like kind of just follow what works for you, right. And follow kind of uh, what, what grabs your attention and, um, what kind of aligns with your passions. But I wanted to go back to that video game point. Would you say like that was maybe one of the first first times that um, you kind of opened your eyes to entrepreneurship in terms of um, that side of business? Because I don't think a lot of kids would look at a video game and be like, I want to be a programmer because that's where the, like, that's where the money is, right? We're always like, oh, I just, this is a dope game, right? This is so cool. So would you say that was like the first time or first instance? Yeah, I'd, pr I'd probably say that was one of my earlier experiences in trying to create something uh, for profit, I guess you would say. I mean, through my, luckily during my high school, we had a lot of these almost, not new venture creations, but like create a product, try to sell something. So I created a knockoff Pac-Man game and sold to a bunch of my friends for about $5. So me and my friends would try to make video games um, to really kind of turn a profit, but also really just for fun. So that was probably my first experience in really trying that entrepreneurial sphere, trying to create something from scratch and do it. And funny enough, a lot of my friends, you know, continue with that and end up working for Tesla in, um, you know, CAD or 3D design. So it was an interesting time in my life, especially being introduced to that. And 
I mean, a lot of us got banned on video games for creating like scripts or anything, but <laughs> I, I guess you have to say when it was my first time I really realized I could create something was probably during those times trying to build games all the way from tower defense to Pac-Man to even trying to do some uh, tank games as well. For sure. Yeah. So we, we, I have a question on that. So you kind of went into, obviously you're completing your MBA right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've done extensive schooling as well. So kind of incorporating that mindset of creating, right? Like, because you, you wanted to create the game for people to, uh, to provide to people. So how did that kind of help in your schooling, like thinking that way rather than thinking as a consumer? Yeah. So I think one thing that's helped me, I guess, since day one, and I, it really is helping hindered is my contrarian view on things. So I don't know if that's the best word. I always consider myself controversial, which isn't the best word to use. But what I mean by that is every time I would hear something or do something, I always ask why, you know, Oh, this is a process you have to do. Why is that? You know, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go to school? Why do we have to, you know, pay taxes, all these silly questions as a kid. And especially when it came to law businesses and law processes, I would really question a lot of things. And I mean, my family wasn't the best thing because they'd constantly just say, you know what, just do it. You know, you're, you're told to do this, just get it done. But for me, I was always really curious about, you know, what, how things work, why things work. Um, so I think really what helped me with the programming and really through in schooling was, I mean, personally, I loved, I loved school. I found the education part more exciting than the social part a lot of times. And I'm probably one of the few people who did, or at least one of the few people who admit it. Um, but what that mindset really introduced me to and helped me through my schooling was also always to figure out, okay, how can we do this project better? How, you know, this is what we're being taught. Why are we being taught this? You know, where is this applicable in the real world? Especially in business school, you hear all these two by two frameworks and always curious on how, how these things actually work. Helped me a lot of times on a lot of projects or a lot of other aspects to really do deep dive, especially on a lot of consulting projects. But at the same time, one of the challenges with having that mindset of always being curious is the fact that when a school tells you, kind of, this is the process you're supposed to follow, there's not much back and forth. You can't really argue with the professor that, you know, is SWOT analysis correct? How about this one case scenario? It's no, follow this process. This is how it works. So I think that's where schooling helped me a lot was being forced to think in a one direction away, or at least use my thinking to get to similar results as what was expected. For sure. Yeah. And, and I like that a lot. I think uh, school tends to kind of set you in that silo of think this way and don't ask questions. Um, and you, and you kind of incorporated both sides, right? To say, mm-hmm. all right, let's, let me learn the procedural side of just doing uh, like carrying out a strategy, but also understanding that like, this is not the end all be all. So I really like that you touched on that. So you went to Laurier, uh, Wilfrid mm-hmm. Laurier University, um, and now you're over in BC uh, completing your MBA. Um, would you like, can you talk to the parallels between uh, those two experiences right now? Obviously they're uh, on different ends of Canada, uh, but can you talk to us about those experiences? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, so I just graduated my MBA in December. Um, Congrats. But, yeah, thank you. It's been, it was very interesting. And actually, this is a great segue. So ha- having, I found Laurier and uh, UBC quite similar um, 
in the sense of really connection to startups in general. I mean, there's a fairly big tech scene, not compared to Toronto or Waterloo, but that focus is quite important. I think the difference is really twofold. One, location played a huge role. Um, and coming to BC and really what UBC offered was the reason I came out here versus UFT or some of the other schools in Toronto. But I found the difference between Laurier, just first Laurier and UBC, the biggest difference was, I mean, and this is also about five year difference in gaps, so teachings could have changed, was that British Columbia being such a large research school and a very focused on sustainability and um, focusing a lot more on green tech, most of my schooling was about, okay, how do you make sustainable product, product, products? A lot of the live cases were on companies who had either focused on a huge part of sustainability or were really used in a way to better the world. So that was a big part of my learning. Not so much in the sense that my education was around that, but all the examples we got to see, all the companies we got to visit, all had a tie into that. So I found compared to Laurier, where a lot of, we had to learn about ethics, it was a big right. part of our schooling. It was more, okay, this is how you incorporate ethics into a business. Here are some examples. UBC, every business out here, and I think that's really the West Coast lifestyle, every business out here had some tie into that. For Laurier, for example, I felt a lot more focused on tech and high growth business. So being able to work with 100 startups, and I've probably talked to easily over 10 CEOs who've raised $100 million or still for $100 million is an invaluable experience. I don't think I could get anywhere else or any schools um, comparatively. And it's just such a bigger market with being Toronto so close by. The difference between MBA and a, I guess an undergrad, I would say is both are very based on the idea of thinking in a business mindset. And I mean, similar to why you would study math, the same reason why you study business. Sure, a lot of the concepts you might learn won't be applicable to your day-to-day -day life, it just teaches you to think in a different way than you typically would. But an MBA, I would say, for me especially, was much more focused on learning how to speak with and work with people of different backgrounds. So out of my MBA class of 95 students, I believe, 60 were international. You know, only 20 of them, only 20 of the students came from a business background. So most of my colleagues were in engineering and healthcare or any other, any other industries and as well in an MBA, the coursework isn't that complex or that hard. The real value comes from having discussions and almost arguments. Half my class would, half room would be separated into very heated arguments where, I mean, some of our professors had to like leave the room. It was very intense, but it was a different style of learning because one thing that was interesting is when you get to an MBA is everyone has an ego there. Everyone is a type A personality. Every, most people there have had success you know, some never have to work again a day in their life. They're just doing this for fun almost. So when it comes to arguments in undergrad, you tend to be arguing with really just opinionated people. Now you're arguing, arguing with very opinionated people who say, I've had success. I'm right about it. So you have a lot more of a interesting discussions, but at the same time, you get to learn from a lot of people. So I think learning from peers is a lot more bigger part of an MBA versus an undergrad. And most of the learning does come from those arguments, which I guess would be the biggest difference between my time at Lorraine and my time at UBC. I think that's a really good distinction to understand as well. Uh, and, and you touched on that with Laurier, you were able to kind of reach CEOs and that was just 
a lot of that comes with the environment that it's in, especially in Waterloo. Uh, they have that tech environment there. So you can reach out to those people. And then the MBA style, it's um, another level of individuals that you're dealing with. So like you said, they have a different ego um, right there. So I like that. I like that there's a very um, clear distinction between those two things. And that was a beautiful way to kind of lead into this right now. And what I wanted to ask you about was you had a podcast while you were in school. Um, this is called the, it's called MBA, the millennial business advice. Um, and you talk about MBAs and schooling and I'm going to paraphrase something here. Um, during the segment, you said that the point of education is teaching you how to think, how to interact with others and how to lead. So, Obviously, in recent years, we've seen the rise of different types of schooling, non-traditional postgraduate schooling. There's Quantic School, there's a Power MBA and things like that. Um, and so it, it, you're very clear on your opinion. You said it's not the same. You can learn from it, but the experience is not the same. And you're reflecting that right now as well. Um, so what I wanted to ask was, has your opinion on that budged at all especially given the current climate uh with COVID-19 obviously a lot of these schools are blowing up a lot of the traditional schools have moved to that virtual environment um and they're seeing uh some success and you know some failures here and there but like has your opinion changed on that ever ever since um with the current climate I, I would say it's probably come a little bit stronger in the sense that I'm a pretty, I enjoyed school. So I mean, I'm pretty biased in the sense that I found a lot of value in school, but I think the biggest difference is between, and especially now between an online education versus an in-person education, I feel there is a drastic difference. And I feel the biggest difference is that peer to peer learning. So, I mean, I've done a lot of courses online or a lot of these self-taught courses. And I think, the biggest difference is you can learn, you can pretty much easily learn anything you want online. I don't think school, I think school helps you learn hundred percent, but I don't think learning is the main point of school. I think thinking is really where school plays a bigger value. So how, how I would say is, you know, I've, I've learned how to do a lot of courses. I've learned accounting. I've learned all these topics online typically, but when it came to schooling, really where I found the value was it taught me to think differently. So you, instead of getting to, you know, one plus one equals two and just getting an answer, I found school taught me a lot more. Okay. How do we get there? Why are we getting there? The why is behind a lot of things I feel are hard to be self-taught because it's hard to think in someone else's mindset and sure thinking how other people think or thinking that linear path might not be effective for you long-term or, how you should be thinking, but I feel getting different perspectives is extremely important. Um, and I found online schooling a little bit harder to get that, just typically because you do work by yourself, the whole classroom environment and whole group environment isn't there. But at the same time, I feel because my degrees are in business and business tend to be a lot more group work oriented, I feel that's different. Maybe if I was in some other degrees where their thinking and learning is much more linear, such as the sciences, or engineering or even some of the computer science courses, I think there might be easier value transitioning. I mean, what's interesting is a lot of these top MBA schools, the schools, uh, students are suing them now for refund to their tuition. Right. And their stance is that the reason you pay to go to a top MBA school or to a school is not for the learning. It's for the ability to communicate with other like-minded individuals and to have that community and alumni network 
on your resume or having that connection. So I think by seeing the transition of students suing schools to the fact it's going online is a big sign that the value isn't on the learning because they're getting the same material. It's on that social aspects. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I know I'm a little bit kind of going all over the place here, is that I think the ability of growing those different types of online education will be huge in educating people who want to learn. I just think for a lot of people, a lot of people don't actually want to learn things. And by paying, you know, forty thousand dollars for schooling, it's almost like buying it's almost like buying a personal trainer. You could easily get trained online and get workup programs for free. There is no difference. But once you start putting money into it and you have to see someone face to face, I think that's when you get a little kick in your step. I think that's really the biggest difference. Overall. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair, yeah. And uh, Brandon, I actually, I actually talked to that because uh, both of us went to Laurier. We did the BBA program. So I can kind of relate to you in the fact that the group setting really did make an impact during our like cases and stuff like that. Um, I'm actually also a part of the Quantic MBA program, so the online program. And so to your point, the value is almost in the network. I, um, and just meeting like-minded individuals, I think is really powerful. But I do agree with you, like so far taking the course, you do miss that uh, factor of being together with a, in a group setting and kind of sharing your thought process. So it's kind of a singular um, kind of, I guess, approach to that. But in terms of the learning and the objectives there, I think they're pretty effective. It just depends on, I guess, the user at the end of the day and how they kind of see the MBA program. And again, to your point, like if you are paying like 40, 50K, um, I think it's probably a good idea to obviously kind of approach it in a manner where you have to be there all the time and um, go for it. And I want to ask you on that in terms of the future of schooling, um, you you distinguish between kind of the networking and the learning aspect, right? So in terms of what you see for the future, would you like, what do you think the direction of schooling is headed in? Because I think one way to look at it is separating those two set, those two streams, right? You, you, the MBA schools can have that networking aspect to it, but keep the learning online. Like, is that something that you would explore or like, what do you see for the future? I think overall having more online resources will be massive. I think that's for sure the future of education i'm not sure though if it's the future of schooling now i'm not sure if i'm trying to be a little bit controversial here we're trying to find two different aspects but i'm from a lot of the things i've did and i love behavioral economics i've done quite a bit of reading in that realm i think what you learn face to face and speaking with people is invaluable and hard to get in other avenues because typically especially when you're a young kid you're not where you're going to meet another 30 40 100 people your age pretty difficult and that's why maybe sports play a big role um but i think what the big differentiator is going to be is that students who are actively wanting to get ahead it gives you an avenue now prior a lot of times to learn you either had to have financial resources or you had to be well connected and know someone who you know was a professor you could go to a university near you with a growing online schooling i think if no matter where you are in the world you could differentiate yourself by being you know, the, one of the smartest people in the world without ever having a formal education or being from a small, you know, small town school, you could still compete with all these Ivy League schools. 
I just think one of the challenges um, is, and I mean, similar to going to the gym is, if you're not motivated to do it, being stuck in a school forces you to learn. Um, but if you want to learn, I think this is really where we're going to start seeing a gap in, almost a gap in the competition. The students who are actively interested in getting better, people who are actively curious, are the ones who are going to start being able to really be leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else um, overall. I just think one of the challenges are is how do you motivate a sea of youth to take it on themselves to, you know, to start learning and start getting educated. I mean, if you think about it, we know what working out does. You can see results pretty quickly. Education takes a little bit longer and not many people actually go to work. I mean, people work out now because of social media much more, but I think it's one of those challenges is how do you motivate people to go online? versus getting stuck in the classroom. But I think it's, it's great. I mean, any way you can empower people to take control of their future is a positive way. So I think a lot more schooling is gonna have options to have online components to help those, you know, they would say gifted students, but really to help those students who wanna get ahead, to get ahead and also track their progress. I mean, LinkedIn's a great way of seeing all those certificates right now anyway. For sure. Yeah. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of change uh, on the horizon and we're kind of in that in that stage where we don't know where it's headed and we'll kind of see where it leads. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, well, I want to shift from kind of uh, the schooling side to the company side. And I know Amin wants to jump into like uh, your professional history as well. So I'll let him take it away here. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you've been quite interested. I think it might have stemmed from obviously early goings with uh, being entrepreneurial and then through Laurier getting exposed to tech. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about is what about early stage companies excites you the most? Because I've noticed you worked at a lot of say startup type companies. And so how, how, how does that kind of company really motivate you to kind of take it and grow it and scale the business? I really, I really think what I find interesting about them is the ability to make a difference. I mean, your boots on the ground, if you're lazy or unsuccessful, the company could fail. So having that responsibility is quite unique, but at the same time, you are almost responsible for any outcome of your own success. Um, I mean, typically if you're in a company of you know, under 20 employees, you have a direct impact to the bottom line, no matter where you are, whether it be in HR, on the tech side or even on the sales side. What also interests me about a lot of these small companies is the fact that first your, you know, your crazy ideas will be heard typically because you can walk to CEO and speak to him. But at the same time, most of these small companies are in those industries that are trying to disrupt or are trying to make a greater impact within the world. Um, Large organizations do the same thing, but I think what interests me about this and really goes back to my childhood, asking all those why questions mm -hmm. is trying to be a little bit different, trying to change the way things are done overall. And at the same time, I think it's one of those things where it could be that, I feel, you know, I feel special. I feel like I can do a lot of things. I feel like I'm a superstar. And by putting my place in these, you know, organizations, you can almost test yourself every single day. Um, I just think overall, as funny as it is, I love working for startups. It always ends up me, for me, being connected with startups at the same time. It's almost similar to, not, I wouldn't say fate, but similar to a lot of the roles I have been getting or have gotten in my life have really just been from conversations, speaking to people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the ability to make a change and make a difference, but as well as almost 
test yourself is really what, what I like about these small, high-tech, hyper-growth, as they would say, startups. So with that being said, um, a lot of people know that early stage companies are high risk, but some people don't have the toler uh, tolerance for you know the risk profile of a startup. But all of us know that tech is like the cool thing now. Um, so what would you kind of tell someone uh, who wants to work in tech, but is also potentially risk adverse, um, and maybe how to approach that scenario? So I think that's really a good question. Um, I think there's two things. First, it's a little bit dependent on your age. Um, I think actually the older you get, the more you should look at working with a smaller organization a little bit, um, just from my experiences. I think a lot of times small companies do pay good salaries. Mm -hmm. It's a, little, a lot of times a misconception that if you go for a startup, you're going to be making no money. Most of the roles I've seen are spoken to people. You make fair salaries. It's probably not the cutting edge. You're not making maybe consulting or investment banking money, but you're making relatively fair money to kind of, I'd say, live your life, but in, have a reasonable amount of success. And at the same time, I mean, probably getting into this later, but that work-life balance, I think is a lot of times better in a startup. You work longer hours, but work-life balance is better, I'd say. So I if, if you're someone who would be interested in transitioning to tech, there's really, I feel, a few ways of going. One is to volunteer your time as an advisor. Um, just speak with a few companies you may find interesting, especially if they're small, you know, if there are less than 20 employees saying, hey, you know, I like what you do. If you have industry experience, bring that up and say, hey, you know, I've worked in this industry before. You're trying to revolutionize it. I'd love to have a you know, coffee. And if I could help out in any way, be an advisor, give some guidance. Most of these small organizations are willing to bring you on as an advisor, bring you on as an give you to give advice. And then once they grow, you can always jump on to the company. I know, I know a lot of my friends who worked as advisors and once they raised Series A, went in full time. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I think if you want to get involved, really, when you go for a small company, the biggest challenge is you're joining a team, not a product. Because a lot of times when you're at a small company, the product's going to change. There are going to be differences. You know, where you're doing this month will be different than next month. However, the founding team is going to be there still. So I really think speaking to the team is highly important. First, they get along with them and that you think you, they're smart. And hopefully you think they're smarter than you. Because if you think you're smarter than them, it, you just start building tension. If something goes wrong, you start blaming them saying, you know, this wasn't obviously the wrong choice. Why'd you do this? So I think having a good relationship is bigger than anything else working with a small company. So I think that probably made two bits of advice. Try to advise if you want to get your feet wet, or even if you don't want to work for free or just have a conversation. I mean, most of these small tech companies are willing to talk to you, have a coffee chat with you. So once you start speaking to them, you'll see, and I mean, sometimes it's almost like dating. If you fall in love with them, you might say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm making, you know, X amount of money. I'm making now four fifths of my salary, but I really believe in this guy. It's probably worth the risk. I just think a lot of people underestimate how much you can get paid at a small company, especially with, I mean, when you're relatively young in your career, a lot of times the salaries will be on par. I'm not sure if you're going to be, you know, if you're a director at a large organization, you might be making way less, but I really think it's not as bad as people think. Yeah. And I think that was probably the, 
most perfect answer I've ever heard <laughs> in relation to that question. So yeah, for anyone uh, trying to get into tech, this is kind of the similar approach. It's just like uh, you're early in your career, you can take the risks. And if you're in that space of learning and want to learn a lot, because you get your feet wet in a lot of different areas. I think a lot of people have the misconception of if I'm in a finance role, I'm going to be stuck in finance. That's never the case with tech. You get involved in product marketing and so you learn a breadth of things within tech. And I think that's the coolest thing, especially with our millennial uh, folk. We know we like to hustle and learn a lot. So I think that's, that's why tech, I think, excites us as a, you know, as a generation itself. I had a quick question here. And, and this is actually for both of you guys. Um, I, haven't, I haven't worked in a startup environment. I know Amin has, um, and obviously you have, Brandon. So you, you mentioned one thing there. You said that startups have... Um, longer working hours, but better work-life balance. And normally people don't think, normally longer working hours means less work-life balance. So can can you guys explain what, um, I mean, if you agree with that statement, but also like, can you guys kind of explain that statement? Yeah, I might explain it first so that in case you agree or disagree, my definition could be a little bit different. So I think the big, how, this was just taught to me recently, and I've always felt this way, was that work-life balance should be measured based on the hours work, it should be measured by how much energy you have when you get home. So one of, my, one of the people I met at EA Games, which most people know, big, one of the biggest employers in Vancouver, is he said he's, he used to work from you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day almost, but he'd go home, play with his kids, have a ton of energy, you know, have dinner with his wife, really enjoy life, where he had other friends who you know, worked nine to five, get home, be miserable, and just watch TV. So I think it's one of those things where when you look back on your week, are you miserable that you worked? Or are you happy? Um, now, I think the reason I say work-life balance is different than ours is I've worked in, I worked at a summer camp where I was technically working for like 12 hours a day. I mean, different type of work, but I loved it. It was one of the best experiences of my life where I, and I've worked in other jobs where, I mean, it was nine to four thirty, four o'clock every day. I would get home and just be done. I was miserable. I hated it. So I think the misconception is a lot of people look at hours as a way of like figuring out how much time they're going to have. But at the same time is if you're having fun and enjoy, I not even having fun, but you're enjoying your work and you feel accomplished. I think that psychological energy you might get or that feeling you get will give you more time almost to do other things you want to do. I think that at the same time, if you're working, you know, 20 hours a day, no matter how fun it is, you're really giving up too much in your life. So I think that's really one side of the coin. But I mean, working a few extra hours every day, if you really love it, I don't think should be considered a bad work-life balance. How about among you? What, what's your views of my views? Yeah, no, I, I actually have the same kind of viewpoint. Um, so to that point where you mentioned like coming home and kind of not enjoying your life. Uh, <laughs> so I can actually relate to that coming from public accounting, coming home. I just hated things I do every single day. And it's almost the fact that I got, I just got into a position where I wasn't learning anymore. And it was just the same, same rudimentary task every single day. And so that's kind of where I made the shift into. Um, and again, with the public accounting, you do work a lot of extended hours. So now you're actually pumping in work and not getting anything out of it. So it's, the worst kind of case scenario. Um, whereas when I went to tech, 
to uh, to the point where we were talking before is just you get to learn so many things outside of your I guess say expertise so you're always kind of interested and so the extra few hours that you're putting in and again as a startup you're gonna have to put in those extra hours because the expectation is for the company to grow and the only way to grow is kind of have everyone on the team to you know put in those extra hours and make a difference um, so yeah to that point it's just uh, working those extra hours never felt like they were a burden to me it was more so hey I get the chance to learn something new get to deal with new individuals uh, I get to talk to like maybe build a strategic relationship some way and so that's kind of what always kept me interested and that's kind of why I've stayed in tech because uh, I continuously get that itch to learn um, and so that's kind of I, I definitely agree with you Brandon there it's just uh, that work-life balance is kind of um, with tech it's there in the sense that I shouldn't really weigh the hours in rather that the value I get out of the role and the passion that I'm building out of it. For sure. Yeah. I like, I like both of that. And I think uh, it's important to consider that because I feel like fulfillment is, is almost like the unknown variable or the ignored variable in a lot of these positions, because a lot of us grow up and we're just, we're fixated on the salary and the benefits and the perks. And do we have a gym uh, discount or something? Right. And it's like, think about the fulfillment that you're getting from that, from, from the work that you're doing. So I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Brandon, you also have a quite an interesting story. You've worked in uh, several different uh, countries as well. Um, and so we know that countries can have a different type of culture when it comes to business. So how does your experience and experiencing these cultures influence the way you work today uh, and have made an impact uh, in your work? For sure. So yeah, long, I have actually my resume if you if anyone ever saw it, it's actually on, I think it's on my LinkedIn as well, is very, mis, not misleading, it's very <laughs> quirky and fun. And for that reason, um, so through my MBA and even through high school and university, I had a chance to work, but also almost do consulting projects around the globe. So, I mean, when I was younger, I went to England to, uh, through Instant Young to do Young Entrepreneurship Program, where we had to do almost a project with Wings for Life, which is a Red Bull affiliated charity. Um, and within my team there, this was my first experience international teams. I mean, it was someone from India, someone from Sweden, and someone from Spain, I believe. So everyone had different styles of work there. And what I found interesting was, I mean, this was very naive on my part, but was that how you conduct business and the whole idea of the grinding mentality and how you do sales is dramatically different. You know, the, I feel in North America, especially the personal relationships don't play a huge role in the sense that there's not a lot of trust between people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've gone so many verbal offers to jobs. I've never got a contract on my, you know, in my hands. And that was a quick learning experience when I was right up undergrad. Never agree or never hold your hopes up until you have a signed contract in your right. hand. Um, but what I found interesting is probably that my time in Japan. So when I was in Japan, I worked at a bonsai nursery. Although it was considered a schooling, or I was at bonsai school, um, it was really almost like an internship in a sense that I had to carry the plants, pick out the pine needles, sweep the floors. I really got to see the day-to-day -day of how you run a plant nursery or a bonsai nursery, as well as they took me on a few of the business trips. So 
buying plans, selling plans. And I always see from a very outside looking in perspective as this was most one of the most traditional businesses. It was in the person's family for multiple generations. Um, I mean, so some of the trees there were three, 400 years old and they were passed around from all these different people. But what I got to see there was that, you know, when we went there, when we went somewhere, we'd almost get stuff for free. They'd say, oh, here's a pot, take it. Or, um, you know, here's something, have it for free, no payment needed. And I was really confused about that. Cause I mean, a lot of these were little knickknacks, they were cheap, but a lot of these places weren't well off. I mean, you're visiting people's farmhouses and they're giving you, you know, $30, $40 worth of things for free. So I almost asked a few people, why are they doing that? And the whole idea within Japan, and this could be completely wrong, but my experiences were that, you know, if they do something nice for you, they, you'll repay them eventually. Maybe not you, maybe your kids will do something. So there was such a big trust in that community that a lot of it was heavily relationship-based, like generations, or I've known this person for 50 years, someone gave a thousand dollar pain to someone else because five years ago, they did the same thing. So I found that really interesting that there's no real cold calling idea or harsh business practices. It was really much more based on who you were as a person and how much you could be trusted, which I, it was really refreshing to see because I think a lot of times, especially with LinkedIn, a lot of these platforms, people think they can burn a lot of bridges and more they won't come back, you know, back to bite them. You know, oh, you have a bad interview. People will say, screw them, or they really, you know, say bad things about one company. I think what it introduced me really quickly was that having these connections and having that relationship can play a really big role into really how successful you can be in the future. But at the same time, I think working internationally really taught me that no matter, even if it's considered, you know, England, Germany, anywhere else, you know, in the world that's considered these powerhouses of industry or you, know, you consider on par with Canada, how they do business is completely different. So you can't assume things that much, especially when it comes to meetings. And I don't typically mean in the sense that, you know, you learn business school, like different practices the country does, but more in the sense that really what is, ex what is expected from someone else. So I think in North America or coming from North American mindset in Canada and the United States are dramatically different. The idea of having that cold calling approach or turn and burn style of sales wasn't the same thing everywhere and a lot of times having that warm introduction or having someone to bring you in especially in some of the other countries i've spoken to was such a big deal so i think it's one of those things to be conscious of a lot more but at the same time i think the biggest commonality between anywhere is it's people working with people so mm -hmm. i think people overestimate how important business skills are if someone likes you no matter if they run a business you know a million people or 10 people, it's still people to pre people. And at the end of the day, that's really the biggest thing that matters. Yeah, I've no, actually noticed that outside of North America. So I actually went to a trip last year to Peru to kind of trek and go to Machu Picchu. Mm -hmm. So we had a chance to meet the native individuals. And to your point of uh, the Japanese kind of giving and then, you know, almost uh, expecting kind of a form of gratitude afterwards, the natives had the exact same kind of attitude. It's just like, okay, I built a house or helped you build a house. Um, in the future, your son or someone can help me out and do the same kind of aspect. Um, and I found that, I, like, just like you, I found that super, super refreshing because 
you see in like our kind of daily business tra- uh, interactions, you don't really see that all the time. And so I think outside of North America, you might see this more often. Um, and so that leads to me, leads me to my next question. Can we have that kind of influence and change in culture and apply it to say the North American style of business? And do you think if we had that kind of approach that it may make an impact long-term? I, I think so quite a bit. I think the biggest thing is because of LinkedIn and social media, your presence is almost known worldwide now in the sense that every organization I've joined, no matter from Toronto, Vancouver, anywhere else, I'll know someone else who's worked there or who's has a connection or who knows someone there. So I think the idea of having stronger connections plays even a bigger role now than ever before, because prior, if you join a big organization, someone's hiring someone, they had no idea who they knew. But right now you check LinkedIn, you say, oh, you know, Brennan's connected with them. Let me just ask him what he thinks of him. And if I dislike you or, you know, we've had a bad relationship in the past, it's being brought up. So I think Mm -hmm. it's being forced now um, with a lot more of social media presence being around, knowing people's history. And I think at the end of the day, having that community around where you don't expect, like, if I give you something, I need something back right away. Just having, like, the idea of good faith really, really works out well. I think it's a more peaceful way to live. And at the same time, I think we'll be seeing it more and more, especially due to the fact that all your, you know, skeletons in your closet are coming out now due to social Mm -hmm. media. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a good point there. Uh, what I wanted to talk about next is like this fascination with bonsai. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of made you go from business to bonsai? And what have you learned through that process? Uh, you've already mentioned it was a really uh, kind of rewarding experience. But what about bonsai kind of led you to that opportunity? So this is the probably my most unique thing I've ever done in my life. And it's top of my resume and it's, it's gone mm-hmm. to got me in some trouble before uh, due to it. And that's some interesting stories in and itself. But so what happened was I was working in near my house at Edwards gardens in Toronto. They had a bonsai club and I would, you know, I was interested in bonsai. I always like gardening. I was like an old man. I love gardening and you know, all these elderly hobbies you'd say. And I like bonsai cause I, like most people, it was fascination. It was interesting. And I want to join a club to learn because online it is almost impossible to learn what to do because a there's a thousand sources and B the results take 50 years to see. So I could be doing something wrong and not know for 30 years, very not rewarding feeling. I wanted at least some instant gratitude. So found the club thought it'd be great to join, kind of learn from other people. Um, so I did that. And then, they're having a large purchase from Japan and on the website they're buying from, they had a link to a school and this, I don't know why I signed up looking back. It was a little bit crazy because it was a link. You had to email someone and then you had this email exchange where there was no like professional website or anything. It was like a basic HTML page and it was relatively cheap, which was also scary. Um, but I wanted to prior to my MBA, I, you know, I quit my job and I had almost a summer off. And I said, this is the one time in my life where I can do something this almost random or this intense. Mm-hmm. And me as a person, I guess every week I almost have a new hobby or have a new passion. So I was like, if I want to learn something, I want to get as 
much of an expert as quick as possible in a, in a short amount of time. So I said, I won't learn how to be good at bonsai. I'm going to go to Japan and do this. And that, I pretty much flew down, flew down there, thought it was going to be much more of a classroom style. It was really a job. You know, I was <laughs> cleaning the floors, sweeping the floors. It did teach me a lot about internships, though, because right there, the guy who was an apprentice there, he works there for six years, is unpaid, and is expected to work from seven to 10 every single day with one day off a week. So I was like, oh, damn, this, mm-hmm. there is no. I mean, even no matter what you consider work-life balance, there is zero here. You're not allowed to smoke, have a girlfriend, or do anything. But I asked him, why are you doing this? He's like, I don't even like this. I said, why are you doing this? And he said, because I saw the respect my Oyakata, my master, gets when I saw him do, a, you know, when I saw him perform or with his artwork, I want to be an expert at something. So I think that was one thing I wanted to learn about how, you know, people there dedicate their whole life to something. And it's not mm-hmm. like you retire at 55, you're re- your whole life. Uh, so I signed up and I showed up there and it was the most unique experience. I mean, it's, it's all my resume for a reason, just because yeah. it's a great conversation talk topic, but it was a w- really random. There wasn't a plan to do it. It was literally within a month, I decided to fly to Japan and live three months in a little house and work at a nursery. So weird transition. How's the communication barrier there, though? Um, where, did you were you familiar with Japanese prior to? Never, uh, never been to Japan prior to either. Um, luckily, though, they um, the guy who ran it, um, he spoke a little of English. His son spoke English. They were pretty well educated. They went. Um, okay. His son did schooling in North America, but at the same time, two other people who were there as well, a part of the school, ran nurseries or bonsai nurseries in Australia. So I did have a little bit of a buffer. They've been there before they understood it. But when it came to, besides a, besides a little place in town, no one really spoke English. So I was really just, you know, walking, running around, going to rest, you know, restaurants. I bought a pet beetle, which is kind of <laughs> cool. I mean, it's very common, I guess, pet there. Um, but yeah, like when I went to the grocery stores, it was very little English. And I mean, typically they could help you here and there, but I remember... I had to find a washing once and no one knew where it was. So I was like, oh no. So I just had to run home. So it's one of those things where first time in my life, the first time in my life where I've been somewhere where, I mean, yeah, first time in my life where I've been somewhere where no one spoke English. Everywhere I've traveled before, typically you could get by with English. Here it was, you couldn't really get by unless you had Palatman who spoke English. And although it was Mm -hmm. common, it wasn't that common, especially in the smaller towns. Right. Right. That makes sense. Uh, Sherson, uh, have you had any experience like that? I know you've traveled a bit too, so. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to work abroad like that. So I haven't been able to, uh, I haven't been dropped in that culture shock per se. Uh, but I, it's definitely on my bucket list. So it, it's cool to, cool to hear that, that story. But just, just a quick sidebar here. What is a pet beetle and kind of how, like, <laughs> t- tell us a little, just a quick snippet about that. Yeah. So. If you just look up like Japanese beetle, they're pretty large beetles. And when I went there, I, I enjoy pets. Like I always had like either your dogs growing up or I had a fish tank. I was really into the aquariums. And they had a pet store which sold snakes and beetles for like a few bucks. So I had a huge, I had a huge, I was only there for three months. So I was like, okay, do I get a pet beetle? This is so <laughs> random. And I, as silly as I call, you know, I call my mom and I'm like, okay, I'm in Japan. 
I need, I need some, I need some advice. Do I buy a pet beetle? And she's like, why are you doing this? Like, I don't know. It's $5. And she's like, you know what? Just do it. Cause it's going to be a great story almost. So yeah, you get it. I got a pet beetle. He was, I mean, about two, three inches. Uh, I think they're like helmet beetles or horn beetles. I mean, they're quite large and they eat banana pudding almost. So it smells great actually. So it's not like a disgusting pet. They did scare me though. I didn't really touch him or like, guess play with them, but yeah, you get a little box, you get a pet beetle for about $10. Um, and they're apparently a very traditional Japanese pet. You can't really get them in North America though. So that's my like little fun little pet I had that every time I join a new company, it's like, what's some fun facts or truth, truths and truths and a lie. I always throw that one in. One thing right. that I'm learning so far is that you, you just kind of jump into everything. You're like, I don't know it. I'm just going to try it. And I love that. Yeah. And that was something that was, I never did as a kid. Like I hated trying new things and I've changed that a bit. I mean, I feel there's, I'm still I'm not shy, but I'm still a little timid to do a lot of things I feel, but for, I've changed my months a lot more as I kind of, how will this be portrayed as a story? Like, can I tell this as a story in the future? Um, I'm very safe though. Like I don't, I, you know, I've skied my whole life, but I'm not really that into never really hurt myself. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm an extreme person, but when it comes to doing quirky or weird things or weird hobbies, it's almost my cup of tea to say, okay, you know, can I become an expert at this really obscure hobby or this really small knowledge uh, sector? Fair, That's fair, sweet. fair. That's sweet, man. Uh, so now from Japan, we're shifting back and coming back to Vancouver. Uh, so you work for a company called Inkblot and I've known, I've noticed uh, also on your LinkedIn, you have a fascination around the mental health space. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about what Ink, uh, Inkblot's all about and how, what the platform's trying to accomplish. Yeah. So I, I've, I've joined Inkblot almost, I think so almost a little less than a month ago. And I mean, they're based out of Toronto tech star organization. So still have that startup feel and they're really in the hyper growth space right now. So what they are is they're in, in, in a way of saying is they're an online mental health provider for organizations to use to give support to their employees. So, you know, if you're an employee at an organization and they have Inkblot, you can get mental health support virtually uh, and you can connect with a therapist in, you know, 30 minute or 60 minute sessions in a really an ongoing manner. And what intru- really got me interested in this was that ever since even undergrad, mental health was something that was becoming more and more popular in the sense that I was brought up more in conversation. And I think the big shift in my view really where it introduced me was the idea of top athletes having mental coaches mm-hmm. and really what a mental coach is, is a, you know, almost a therapist to really work with how can you become a better individual or how can you take some of your things that might be hindering you and make, you know, perform at a higher level. So when it, came to bring for Inkblot, what introduced me to it was the idea of that more and more we're hearing about how these top athletes, these you know top business people are, are using mental health coaching similar to how you use a doctor if you have a little bit of an ailment or if you need to better yourself. So how I approached it initially was more, okay, the idea of becoming, you know, running 100% all the time is an interesting concept to me just because you can always get better no matter what it is. I mean, you work out to get in better shape. Why not work on the same you know, with, with your mental sake? And um, I knew, especially during COVID and during these times, a lot of times, even through education, if you ever wanted to get mental health support, being a little, I mean, a discussion that is being more open now is still a bit hidden. 
I knew it was going to be an industry that was growing and at the same time can make a large impact really due to the fact that I think, I mean, if you just look at the stats around mental health in the younger generations, it's not a good sight to see. And I think a lot of times it's the idea that family being you know, less, 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 not less important, but less accessible for a lot of people, especially with more international travel, as well as the effects of social media. Although positive, a lot of times, I mean, most of my friends, most of my people I've spoken to would consider themselves having, you know, not being depressed, but having a part of their time where they were you know, under the weather. And I think, especially with a lot of these companies who are hiring top talents, you'll, they'll, they'll give you benefits for an injury or a sprain. But what will happen on the other side of the table? What happens if you, all these stressful roles where you're having high turnover, high burnout rate, some of the organizations I've worked with are spoken to, every year half their employees are gone. And although it could be the industry, I really do feel it's the idea that a lot of these mental health support or mental struggles law employees are feeling aren't able to really be taken advantage of really worked with. So that's how, that's the only reason that I was interested in but And at the same time that, you know, being in a space that I feel is going to be revolutionary five years from now, mm -hmm. um, I think is really what got me interested in the organization. I have a side question here. Mm -hmm. And um, this kind of goes back to your point of Western mentality and, and from your experience of being in Japan and things like that. Um, and I mean, you touched on it too with uh, the natives in Peru, the, the kind of business uh, relationship, right? Like it, you almost have like a barter relationship, whereas in Western society, it's all about kind of profits and kind of maximizing your potential as much as you can. And that's how business works. So I know you like being controversial. So I want to ask with like the rise or kind of the more attention being placed on mental health um, in our generation right now. Do you think that goes hand in hand with how we do business? Like the Western world increasing its, increasing its awareness of mental health and understanding like this is a huge problem that we've been ignoring for so long. Like, do you think it was almost um, a, a, a side effect of the way we do business? I would, I would think so. I mean, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books speaks, speaks a lot about how, we work longer hours now than ever before as any generation prior. Um, so it's one of those things where I think, especially with that idea of, you know, grinding, no days off, um, has probably burnt out a lot of people and has caused a rise in people not being able to really perform at the highest level. Um, even, I mean, I read one of the top books around sleep, like how important sleep is. And for years, people were saying, you know, sleep is for the week, sleep when you're dead. And now you hear all the top athletes and all the top business people saying, oh, I sleep 10 hours a day. I, like, you need sleep. So I think it's right. one of those things where the idea of, you know, you're young, you can't burn out is almost false. So I think that's really why it became more and more popular was people just assumed because your body's fine, your mind's fine as well. And I think it's one of those things that now people are realizing, oh, well, I think the biggest difference actually is data. You can see your employees after, you know, like after two years, they drop down. So people, even as bad as it sounds, you realize, okay, our profits are dropping from our high, high employees. What's causing this? And this is really what introduced people to, okay, can we do coaching? Is there other ways of performing at the highest level? And although it probably came up due to the idea of having profits being the bottom line, how the better profits. I think it's almost a positive in the sense of people are realizing how do we make our people 
better forms of myself and betterments. And I think through sports is the greatest example. How I'm a, I'm a big MMA fan. Mm-hmm. So you always hear how GSP was the first one to have a mental coach. Now all athletes have a mental coach. It's right. the same thing. It's not because something's wrong with you or that, you know, you're broken. It's that, okay, how can I perform better and be the best version of myself? For sure. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So with your role at Inkblot, like how, how are you making that impact? Like, can you give us a little bit of background on how your role as a client manager there is helping you um, push that, push that impact forward? Yeah. So I think what my role is, although it's much more of a sales role, well, my role really is, is to really educate some of these new businesses of what Inkblot offers, but also have those conversations around some of the problems they're facing. Um, during these times, a lot, you know, a lot of companies are realizing that turnover is quite high. I mean, I've worked in tech my whole life and they say turnover is 20%. I feel a lot of times closer to 50. Yep. Um, yep. So I think really my role is really just to connect with businesses and have those conversations around, okay, how are we better supporting your employees? And a lot of times, although it's a, you know, a sales or a lot of times, it's really just having a conversation around what do you guys want to do? And most of these businesses are looking for ways to acquire top talent and keep top talent. And they're actually looking to speak with people. Okay. We want a mental health, you know, mental health platform. So, I mean, if you look at, I believe Canada top list or one of these top lists, they had top, you know, hundred businesses to work for with mental health, for mental health and, you know, visa Salesforce, um ttt i think even video all these big companies are on it so i think it's a lot one of those things where it being such a big topic of conversation now um is me is very important and really my role is really just to connect with these businesses just to see how they can better support their employees during these times and going forward for sure yeah and do you think that like with millennial generation like our current generation obviously is when a lot of this awareness has come up mm-hmm. What, what do you think kind of influenced that? Like, how, do you think it's the generation itself? Like, what did they do differently that kind of brought the light to say, this is something that we really need to focus on and create um, kind of a, a, a market for? Mm-hmm. I really think it's like many things. I think it started with really celebrities speaking out about it, kind of speaking about their times. I think prior, the biggest issue with a lot of these people who maybe were in high stress roles, especially within Hollywood or other aspects is once you're out of the limelight, no one hears your voice. Where now with social media, a lot of these people who, you know, could have had a fall from grace, they can speak out about how they came back or about their problems. So I think that was one thing where the social media, as generic as that is, really disseminated the wall between, you know, the actor or the personality and the person itself. And at the same time, I think it was, due to the fact of social media and the competition, people are always looking for better ways of bettering themselves and looking at better alternatives. So I think it's really a mixture of many things, people being more open to have the conversation, people being more open to explore um, different ways of bettering themselves, as well as I really do think the literature and the education around it has just gotten better overall. So I think it's really a three-pronged thing that really made this probably one of the bigger things and one of the things we're going to see really make a difference over our, our lifetime. Fair. And, and, and to that point, yeah, I just wanted to plug in there, especially cause uh, you're a fight fan, Tyson Fury, that was a huge example, right? He came back and he kind of spoke about his, 
his mental health journey and now he's a champ and he's like this is this is it was a huge deal for people to just witness that right mm-hmm. so oh, for sure. i like that um so brendan with the like shift in towards mental health we've seen companies such as like say calm or headspace become quite prominent leaders in the space um and a lot of the demographic again are the millennials uh, so when we're looking at like scaling a company within this space what are some steps or frameworks do you think that you can take away from calm or headspace and maybe apply it into your sales strategy um, at inkblot um, or any other kind of aspect i think the really big thing to take away is whether it be mental health or even i found this similar frameworks or methodologies around AI. I mean, I've had a lot, quite a bit of work in AI, even cryptocurrencies. Not as much in crypto, but I've had discussions around it. The biggest thing with these, I'd say almost not newer technology, but newer topics is education of mm-hmm. your customers. Um, I mean, I did some pretty, a little bit, a little bit, did a little bit of digging into Headspace, and their biggest thing was that meditation prior, no one really meditated. I mean, it's, even right now, although they're big, it's not something people commonly do every day. So I think for them, what made them popular was that the founder is the voice. He ran meditation sessions for 10 years. Um, he traveled overseas, was highly educated in it. But also, if you look at their website, it's not intimidating at all. They break it down really what the plan is. They give you a way of trying it. And they give you an experience of really what is this meant to do. Um, I think a lot of the around meditation, a little more simple to understand where I really see the challenges for a lot of these AI companies in the sense that no one, most people don't know what AI is. Yeah. And the problem is when you look at an AI product and I've worked for a few companies who've done this and I've spoken to many where they say, you know, we're the best because we have AI in our technology or, you know, we have the best algorithm. It's very rare these companies will say, this is how our AI benefits you. So within those small worlds who know AI, they're like, wow, this is cool, this is sexy. The problem is when you go to market or sell to a customer, no one understands how this AI benefits. You know, you're like, oh, we're, you could tell them, you know, we're a sandwich with AI built into it. Half people will buy it because it sounds cool, but the other half will say, I don't understand the connection. And the problem at the same time is for a lot of these companies who working a lot of these spaces is that a I'm a little bit, I guess, negative on AI for a lot of these things, but for a lot of these companies is the AI components don't benefit the customer at all. It's almost a namesake or a unique feature. So I think one of the big challenges, no matter what industry you're in is at the end of the day, how is what you're doing or how is, you know, what you're trying to benefit people with conveyed to the customer? Can they, you know, in 60 seconds or 30 seconds, understand how it helps them? And if you can't do that, you have to take a step back and reassess what you're really trying to do. And I think that is one learning that, especially working in startups, is a very important because although you think it's cool, if no one else does, you're not going to be a successful business. Yeah, and that's such a valid point there in terms of making sure that there's long-term value for the customer and they actually understand that this is the benefit that you're getting. Um, you know, it's funny that you say like AI and selling AI. I think it was similar in the sense like maybe a couple of years ago where they said, hey, it's a blockchain business or 
<laughs> something like that. And people just bought yep. the whole thing. It's like, oh, I'm doing an ICO or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's it's really relative in saying that, yeah, you you have to kind of focus on the value. And that's kind of what is really allowed you to sell a business or a product in the end. Uh, so that's actually a perfect segue into my <laughs> next question here is what kind of particular frameworks do you use to approach a, in this case, let's say a B2B uh, company and how do you kind of engage with them and uh, what's the typical framework and methodology you use? I think, um, you know, I've had so many frameworks thrown at me over the years, but I think it always changes based on the organization or based mm-hmm. on the company. But I think the biggest thing is no matter what, whether it be business, you know, sales or even conversation is to understand firstly to have multiple touch points. I think yeah. that is number one importance in anything in life is to have many different ways of connecting with people because like I said before, when you sell to a business, you're selling to another person. So understanding the person having connection is utmost more important, you know, utmost importance. You'll hear so many times where people will say, you know, this inferior product won out because someone in the organization knew the founder and had that conversation. So I think the most important thing is to realize that whoever you're speaking with is a person, no matter what type of business, what type of role in life. And the second thing is to really think is how are they going to calculate ROI? Mm-hmm. Um, ROI is something that's thrown out a lot and it's a very simple formula, but I think it's a lot of times you're with, especially within sales and within businesses, you're going to be speaking to an organization saying how much you know, cost savings this could be, or you know, over X amount of years, this is how much money you could save. But it's not really easy for a lot of people to understand how it impacts them or how are they going to see a return on their investment. So I think that's one of the big things that typically is not well communicated. And I've seen a lot of businesses do really good role uh, with this by almost creating personalized quotes or personalized, personalized assessments where you can say, Hey, look, you know, how many employees do you have or what are your costs on here? Okay. You know, within your texting, we see 20% decrease in costs within your first two months. We can see this. And I think that's really how to convey a message and, and sell more is that how are you connecting everything towards that one person? Um, you, you'll see so many campaigns, whether it be B2C or B2B where it's, you know, we've saved a billion dollars or we've done all these things. But a lot of times people will just say, say, Oh, that, that's really cool. Oh, but we're not on Amazon. We're not, I, I don't think it's for me. So I think the idea of really trying to connect to a person and see how are you helping them reach their goals and the importance is goals. You know, if the company is looking to, you know, most companies are looking to increase revenue, but some are looking to decrease expenses or to lower turn, you know, burnout rate or turnover. So I think as long as you can align your, your value or your conversations around what they're trying to do, I think that's the most important thing is, and at the end of the day, have a conversation in person. If you can now a little bit harder, but over the phone, I think, I mean, I've done cold calling in the past. It's rough. Everyone kind of dislikes it. I'm not a fan of it myself. Um, but getting on the phone and having a conversation with a person will teach you so much more than sending an email. I think that is one thing that I've learned. 
I've tried, I mean, I've worked in so many sales jobs where I've tried to tell management, this is not going to work. Cold calling doesn't work. I don't want to pick up the phone. I just do email. I can do a thousand emails. I can only do like five phone calls. But when it came to learning a product, especially at a startup, learning a product for myself and also learning what objections were on the phone, you get so much more information right. just because you got to hear people use their voice. You get to hear them speak at the same time conveying value through your own words rather than just using a template is a lot different. So I think at the end of the day, no matter what you know, frameworks you're using, what type of businesses you're using, number one is to understand people. And the best way to get to people is to speak to them in person if you can or on the phone, because although social media and texting is cool, you, it's not the same value at all. Yeah. And I think being on the opposite side, when a vendor approaches us, our finance team, um, I always get these emails, you know, Hey, like we're the next cool little AI, like machine learning kind of, uh, software that you can use to do X, Y, Z, but that is so generalized and I never understand. Maybe I'll go on the website. It's still kind of hard for me to understand. And the individuals who have actually maybe cold called or set up a call, um, that's the way I kind of understand or go through a demo. And then I, I'm able to pitch to my senior leadership, say, these are the key value points and this is the long-term ROI that we're getting it compared to the cost. So to, to your point of going after the call, understanding the benefits and again, uh, really pitching them the long-term value is going to stick and it actually works people. So um, don't just kind of continually email and bog down people's emails because a lot of the time people just ignore it. And uh, for me personally, it goes into my junk mail. So uh, <laughs> it's never going to get seen. Sure. I think, um, I think you touched on a lot of things in this conversation um, that I want to sum up into this one question. Um, but, but just to kind of recap, you mentioned to understand what the ROI is, right? Depending on whatever, whatever business you're working with. Um, you mentioned forming relationships and maintaining contact points or multiple contact points um, and many other things. So what I want to understand from you is from your perspective, what is your philosophy uh, when it pertains to success? Like, what do you define a success, whether that's in a career or in your life? Like, how do you view that? I define success and how I know if I'm being successful is how fast I can go to sleep. As silly as that sounds. I don't know how many nights, especially during stressful times, you're up, up, up all night thinking, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, what's going on, oh no, what about this, kind of worrying or looking back on your day like it's a nightmare. Um, so I found really what, uh, how you can be successful is if you can go to sleep at night at peace. You know, if you can be like, okay, I've done my work for today, I'm going to sleep and I'm excited for tomorrow. Um, now, it's not to mean that you can't go to sleep being stressed, like, okay, there's so much options to do or, you know, I have, you know, I'm excited for tomorrow, I don't know what's going on. Not every day, but I found the times in my life where I feel the happiest and I feel successful are the times where I can be sleeping better, number one, but also I'm excited to almost wake up for the next day and not dreading that I have to go to the office or I have to do something I don't want to do. Um, I mean, it can't be like that every day, but I think going to sleep easy is probably the best way to know if you're happy with what you're doing and being successful. Simple and concise. I like it. So we're going to pass over into kind of a, a quick lightning round to understand more of your personality here. Um, and these are just a few questions that me and I like to 
throw at our guests and just to see how much they relate to which one of us. So I'll, I'll start with the first one here and then pass it over to Amin. Uh, the first question is, what, can you tell us what your favorite book is of all time up until now? Up until now, Thinking Fast and Slow by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. It changed my life. Um, and for an audio book, a little fun fact is The Goal, uh, which is a textbook uh, for process fundamentals or supply chain. I forget what it's actually called, but it is the best audio book I've ever heard. It's okay. like a textbook. It's funny and you have background notes. But yeah, Thinking Fast and Slow by far is my favorite book of all time. Okay, sweet, sweet. So uh, how, how do you kind of like unwind after a long day? I know sleep is one thing, but... Uh, <laughs> Not not talking about sleep, but uh, just like, how do you enjoy yourself? Video games. I would have to say working out, but that's like kind of hard to do sometimes. For sure, video games is my favorite way of just disconnecting from the world. Uh, what's your uh, favorite game right now? It's been such a big transition uh, since working, but probably Warzone. I'm a Call okay. of Duty kid. I grew up playing <laughs> Call of Duty all through high school. So like that's my generation. That is me. So I'm back into Call of Duty like it's high school all over again. Sweet, sweet. Uh, so name me one company out of, outside of Inkblot that excites you the most. I'm going to answer your question now with a question, but with an industry, and that's eSports. I mean, huge fan of League of Legends, so any of those teams. I think I grew up, I mean, at my age, being born, I was born, it's the same like length as UFC. So I kind of didn't get to see the UFC grow, grow, but I'm getting right now my, you know, over time, I'm going to see eSports possibly be a next big sporting event in the world. So I think for me, that's an industry that I'm super interested in because they were able to be considered, they're on ESPN now. Like they're considered yeah. a mainstream yeah. sports, which I think is so inspiring and so interesting. So I guess League of Legends or Riot Games for creating a sport is probably one of the companies I look at pretty fondly. Yeah, and you've seen the tremendous growth over. I know it's. I know it's more prominent in Asia, um, with in South Korea especially with League of Legends. I think it is, um, but it's picking up in the U.S. because a lot of people ain't watching other sports like golf and stuff. So uh, we've seen that transition. Uh, moving on to the next question: What's the best piece of advice you've received from your dad or your mom? I think the best piece of advice is asking me why or just why do you want to do that or that's not you i think a lot of times how i how i look for advice is almost to get another opinion on things um i think getting advice is always tricky because if you hear something you don't want to hear it's hard for you to follow it mm -hmm. where a lot of times getting just almost like that questioning in the sense that okay you know why do you want to do it like, what's what's the point really what what's the goal of this really what's your outcome you're expecting it's probably the best advice I've ever gotten is to really think of why you're doing something as silly as that sounds. Mostly can answer all your questions. Um, Cause you know, if you, I mean, it's gonna be a little sad, but you've touched on like when you're young, you want to make money, but then someone asks me, why, like, why do you want the money? And you're like, Oh, to buy things. Well, what, what do you want to buy? And you're like, I guess I, this pays me enough money. I can do this. They're like, exactly. Do what you want to do. If money becomes an issue in the sense that like I was comparing like, $5,000 difference. They're like, what's the point? And I was like, okay. So I think we're just asking why figuring out the purpose behind everything is the most important thing and the most important advice I've ever gotten. Okay. And so we know you like controversy and this is probably the most controversial question that we'd ask a lot of our guests. 
Uh, yay or nay for pineapple on pizza? I, I'm gonna say yay. I do enjoy it. I don't know if I enjoy it more than other things, but I mean, I grew up, my mom would buy it all the time. Like I think they were on some Costco pizzas. So I ate it so much and I guess I have to love it now. It was force right. fed to me, not in Diet Coke. That's my family diet upbringing. Sweet. I love it. I love it. I think what, what are we like one, one for five? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, I'm like, I only, we only had one other guest who said nah, no. So kind of on the outside looking in. <laughs> if it wasn't uh, for the pandemic, we could uh, do these, at least some of these interviews in person and I mm-hmm. can reward those people that say yes with the pizza with pineapple on it. But unfortunately we can't right now. Yeah. But Brandon, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. It was great, great chatting. This is a great time. Oh.